0: I'm Alex Shaw.
1: I'm Sharon Shaw. And,
0: and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. With Nail and I.
2: To a delightful weekend in the country.
3: You are cordially invited to spend a carefree weekend in the English countryside. Bask in the warm sunshine.
4: We've gone on holiday by mistake. In
3: Enjoy the rustic pleasure of country living.
4: It's gonna be so cold in here. It's like Greenland in here. Wants to get down there and have sex with those cows. Ah! Partake of fine, varietal wine. Oh, drunk. I assure you I'm not, officer. I've only had a few ales. Get in the back of the van! Take lunch at a charming pub. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. Fraternize
5: with cheery locals.
6: I don't care where you come from. Ponce.
2: Experience culinary pleasures. There is, you will agree, something sais quoi about a firm young carrot.
7: Fish in the region's streams.
4: Don't threaten me with a dead fish.
2: With and I, a
0: trip worth
4: taking. What absolute twaddle.
0: This is a commission show from Andrew Natan. The movie is a 1987 tragic comedy drama written and directed by Bruce Robinson who wrote The Killing Fields and In Dreams, directed respectively by Roland Joffe and Neil Jordan. Bruce Robinson, the writer-director of Wilhelm and I, also directed and wrote How to Get Ahead in Advertising, and he adapted Hunter S. Thompson's The Rum Diary, which I've never seen, but it brought back Johnny Depp playing uh, an analogue for Hunter S. Thompson. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, it is worth noting that The Killing Fields was based on the book The Death and Life of Dith Pran* by Sidney Scharnberg. With No and I covers about a week or so in the lives of two depressed, out-of-work actors trying to survive in England at the tail end of the 1960s. There are undertones and snatches of possible truth, but... They're so chaotic and willfully meaningless that us attempting to decode what the creators intended would be pointless. Instead, we can simply highlight and appreciate the pieces as we pick through the human wreckage. In other words, the the author himself um, has almost shied away from uh, attaching meaning to anything, but we can read stuff anyway. Uh, kind of like Watership Down, but we actually like this film. Yeah,
1: the author of Watership Down went a step further and actively said, There is nothing symbolic yeah. here, stop trying to find it. Bruce Robinson never said that in his defence.
0: Uh, he did uh, actively say, though, you know, it's, it's an alright movie with some alright writing. Yeah. I prefer how to get ahead in advertising. He's
1: very self deprecating. He is, yeah.
0: <laughs> How to Get Ahead in Advertising is about Richard E. Grant, who is an advertising executive who suddenly realizes he's a piece of shit, kind of like Jerry Maguire, and decides to rail against the falseness of his position. And in doing so, everyone thinks he's having a nervous breakdown, and he starts breaking out in this very large angry boil just above his chest on the right, and eventually the boil starts talking to him, and eventually, the boil has eyes and a mouth and teeth, and it keeps saying all the horrible shit that he used to say. And he grows increasingly paranoid and insane, tries to have the boil lanced medically, but the boil will not be done away with. And eventually, the boil grows so big that it crushes his head down, and his head gets lanced, meaning that this creepy, mustachioed version of himself. The boil, his Mr. Hyde, has re-emerged. It's depressing, but utterly condemning of the falseness that can come with marketing.
4: Nobody cares as much about your skin as you do, but we do try. And because we care, we went to an expert. Mother Nature. And we discovered that sometimes the most effective way of dealing with those troublesome little breakouts is Mother Nature's own richest source of vitamin A. So we took essential oils of carrot, marigold seed, roots, and other natural ingredients and we pack this shit into every cube. We called it HP Mega Bench, and if it doesn't work on your blackhead, you can spread the fucker on toast.
0: Now, it must be said as we begin that this is a clumsy British movie made 34 years ago at the time of recording, describing life here 52 years ago, specifically with almost no female presence. There's like two women who barely say anything, very briefly turning up in this film it's a very male film so there are themes and recurring references to homosexuality throughout, some of it sympathetic some of it face palming and insulting to anybody in the 2020s sympathetic to the queer community at large or in it
1: It is worth noting that the minor female presence that there is there are two women specifically who both very briefly say to the central characters that they are not welcome here
0: Oh, we're not forgetting the egg woman.
1: Uh, the, yeah, the woman who refuses to give them food and the woman who refuses to give them food.
0: Right. That comes down to the fact that they are very refusable.
1: Yes, they are. <laughs> But they are not being nourished mm. by their surroundings. Yeah,
0: But um, with all that uh, above said at large, proceed with caution. If this sounds like something we'd be like, you know what, I don't want to know about attitudes to homosexuality in the 60s. I, I don't want to immerse myself in that. Then you'll be much like the way I regard war films, where it's like, you know what, I know. I know about war. I
1: am aware of this. I
0: am aware. I, <laughs> I, I do I've, not need more I've evidence. learned about as much as I can about war, and this isn't going to teach me anything new. So mm. this is the uh, the... the it's the ups and downs of uh, homosexuality from someone who's most definitely not in the uh, queer community. It's an outsider's Indeed. perspective. Yeah, but
1: it's it's um when it appears, and it's not as if the whole thing is suffused with it. But mm. when it appears, it is.
0: It's very it overt. Is,
1: it is very overt,
0: and it's plot holding. But it it's, also it's, kind it's, of it's a it's a plot bearing structure. It
1: is, but it is also ha- it does also have that feeling of this was kind of the. Background noise of Britain in this era. Yeah.
4: Two large gins, two pints of cider, ice in the cider. If so my father was loaded, I'd ask him for some money. Your father's my father, you wouldn't get it. What about what's his name? What about him? I'm gonna give him a call. What for? Ask him about his house. You want me to call what's his name and ask him about his house? Why not? All right. What's his number? I've no idea. I've never met him. Well, neither have I. What the fuck are you talking about? Your relative with the house in the country. Monty. Uncle Monty. Him. What's the one? Get the jag fixed up. Spend the week in the country. All right. Give us a tenner and I'll give him a bell. Here. Get a couple
8: more in. we for a slash. Hans.
2: I'd hardly piss straight with fear. He was a man with three quarters of an inch
7: of brain who'd taken a dislike to me. What have I done to offend him? I don't consciously offend big men like this. This one has a definite imbalance of hormone in him. Getting him more masculine than him, he'd have to live up a tree.
0: At this point, I sees some declarative, strategically placed graffiti just above the urinal. I oh, fuck asses. Who fucks asses?
5: Maybe he fucks asses.
7: Maybe he's written this in some moment of drunken sincerity. I'm in considerable
4: danger in here. I must get out of here at once.
2: Perfume, ponce.
4: You'll be pleased to hear Monty's invited us for drinks. Balls to Monty, we're getting out. Balls to Monty? I spent an hour flattering the bugger. There's one
7: over there that doesn't like the perfume, a big
4: one. Don't, Don't, don't.
7: We're in danger. We've got to get out. What are you talking about? I've been called a
4: ponce. What fucker said that?
7: I called him a ponce. And now I'm calling you
4: one. Ponce! Would you like a drink? What's your name? Mac Fuck! I have a heart condition. I have a heart condition. If you hit me, it's murder.
6: I'll murder the Perius!
4: My wife is having a baby. Listen, I don't know what my f- acquaintance did to upset you, but it's nothing to do with me. I suggest you both go outside and discuss it sensibly in the street.
0: And then they make a run for it. <laughs> Now, this is going to be conclusion before evidence, but with good faith, it doesn't appear to be attempting demonization of gay men so much as a statement on that era. In this country, there was simply no place for a gay man to be. Now, Withnal and I are not gay, so it's not their struggle but one of the characters absolutely definitely is. Now, even within these communities that they dwelled, even amid the profession of trained theatre actors, one which has long been a haven for those who retain a certain kind of ostentatious attitude, affectionately referred to as being lovies, there was no place for a gay man to be. Even when they were filming... They were told by one of the producers, Dennis O'Brien, that what he was seeing wasn't funny, that comedy should always be brightly lit and that Richard E. Grant should play Withnell more like Kenneth Williams. Kenneth Williams made a name for himself for decades playing camp to a nuclear capacity on British television and films. Effectively, the gay version of a minstrel in a quantifiable, self-othering and always entertaining way that straight people could consider as some kind of comedy service. I'll be gay for you and you'll laugh. Does that make sense?
1: It does. And uh, it was a recurring character that, that actors beyond Kenneth Williams did quite frequently in, mm. in
0: British sitcoms. Oh, Betty, the cat's done a whoopsie. Uh,
1: yeah, Even I mean, though
0: he was more of a, just a gay, wet but mother's yeah, boy. That,
1: that kind of, of sort of wobbly, um, ineffectual, effeminate
0: type. Mm. Are you uh, being served?
1: Yes, that's exactly what yeah. I was thinking of. Yeah. John Inman.
0: I gave him a ring and next morning... Good morning, anybody there? Oh,
3: hello, I'm Julian, this is my friend Sandy. Yes, hello. nice to see you. Nice to you. Yes. yes, we are your boner caterers. Great yes. that is to say, Julie and me, we mm. can cater for your every function. Every function. <laughs> for your function, mm. you see. Right, from your hunt ball down to your intimate atomy. Yes, <laughs> your intimate atomy. Yes. Just give us a free hand <laughs> and... <laughs> And we'll give you a do. Your guests'll oh. never forget. <laughs> never. Forget. Never. Now then, what's your the cake? Well, it's my Jules. birthday
2: party. I'm thirty-nine.
3: Oh, oh do you hear that, Sand? Thirty-nine. Mm, around the neck, he's thirty-nine. <laughs> yeah, so you'll want a cake. Yes. Well, we can uh, we can do you something pretty bizarre in Marzipan. Mm. <laughs> How about Dundee, Jewel? Yes, I could let myself go in Dundee. <laughs> Yes. yes, he could let himself go in Dundee, he could. Yes. Well, I think just a simple cake.
9: Now, uh, what about the rest of the food? Mm. Well, it
3: depends on what you have in mind, you see. I mean, you can have your standing-up running or your sit-down knife and fork. Mm. Aren't you? <laughs> your stand-up fingers works out cheapest. Oh, yes. Yeah.
9: Yeah. Yeah, well, I think a cold buffet is best.
3: Would you like us to lay on a turkey? <laughs>
9: Planned on a cabaret.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. While in the '90s, American TV it was like gay. <laughs> the Britain way more progressive. We were like <laughs> we gay. Were ha 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 60s. ha. In the '60s Good and the '70s. Lord. Oh God. <laughs> Straight people didn't want gay pain yet in their drama. They only wanted gay laughs, and they certainly didn't want the humanization that comes when you get past the laughter, the pain, and the dancing. But the makers of Withan and I were told by this money man that they were as funny as an orphanage on fire. Their approach was rejected. They were close to being shut down after just a few days. Somehow they pushed through and together crafted a film that is just as odd and weird and rejected and unpopular as its awkward protagonists. It cost a million dollars and it barely made half of that in its native England and only broke even in the USA. Its second life was throughout the 1990s on VHS cassette when it became a cult favourite with British students in particular. This may or may not apply to other countries, but in the UK, especially back then, students on average were piss poor, directionless, disaffected opinionated, loquacious, and they numbed the pain of their awareness of the world by copiously drinking, smoking, and getting high. And since that's all this film is from a superficial perspective, and it's jam-packed with dark humour, oddness, and highly quotable dialogue, it became something to show your friends on video. That is exactly what happened with me. Mm. I got into Withner and I in the mid-'90s, and I brought it with me to college. As a result, the movie developed a cult following on the uh, Arrow Blu-ray, which looks magnificent, by the way. The original DVD looked worse than the video, mm. which caused a lot of ire with fans. But the Arrow Blu-ray looks gorgeous. And there's, I think, one in the middle that looks pretty good. Yeah. I,
1: I can't remember whether I saw it while I was at college or, or not until I met you. Mm. But having been a student from 1997 to 2000, I can concur. It's, it's fairly accurate.
0: Yeah, uh, But, yeah, on the Arrow Blu-ray, There was a a big gathering in 1999 on Brighton Beach to watch uh, Withnan and I with a bunch of loads of Withnan and I fans. And they all kind of fit the same kind of profile of age, education, class, social profile. Every single person was white, below a certain age, above a certain age, a lot of cigarettes in hand, (laughs) sitting on the sofa talking about how quotable it is, never really trying to get below the surface because it's terrifying. And we're gonna terrify ourselves by going below the surface. The cover of this with Dan and I, and I'm sure probably some of the posters, was done by Ralph Steadman, who uh, illustrated uh, for um, newspapers and magazines, and uh, he uh, penned a lot of art for Hunter S. Thompson, and he has this twisted, scratchy, ink blotty kind of freak show look about what he draws like a little bit like Gerald Scarfe, but not even as as comforting as that he could he could get to the heart of how disgusting politicians are and how venal and corrupt yeah. with this misshaping the human body. so the shot like the the imagery of Whitna and I I'll show you the box yes, hold on. it's chaos and desperation, anguish and isolation and 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 sort of screaming into the void, but there's a kind of a it it also captures the tragic comedy of the whole thing. It's very Shakespearean. It's it's very Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, which was actually by Tom Stoppard, mm-hmm. and uh, Waiting for Godot by Samuel Beckett. It's very much these outsiders who are really not the stars of anyone's story, mm-hmm. but in the eyes of Withnil, he is the star of the world, and he's... Uh overcompensating wildly. No one wildly. Ever seems to
1: recognise that. Yeah, it, I mean, Stedman's art is pretty on point for this. He's caricature, but it's a it's a sharp caricature. It's it's jagged. It's uh, it's cutting. It's not like caricature that's all curves and shiny smiles and mm. and uh, that kind of overplayed cartoonishness. It's much more rough. Yeah, and therefore feels more truthful.
0: Two projects that Withnell and I reminds me of both feature Rick Mayall and Adrian Edmondson. They are The Young Ones, a two-season, 12-episode BBC sitcom from 1982, five years before this film. And Bottom, which, interestingly, is a Shakespearean character and a fool,
6: Correct.
0: from 1991, four years after. With none and I. In The Young Ones, four grotty students live in a foul and ramshackle house, and their existence is one of poverty, arguments, and violence. It has a punk flavour as much as something co-written by Ben Elton could have, and it shares the same hate fueled distaste for Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and everything she stood for as Wiltner and I, director-writer Bruce Robinson, had and displayed specifically how to get ahead in advertising appeared to be a response to Thatcher, even though it was wasn't specifically uh, uh, against the, the Tories as against marketing. It was, I suppose, against the the image that was being sold to Britain.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, he mentioned specifically the fact that when he started to become a little bit more successful, he was <clears throat> he was questioned on why his comedy continued to be so class observing and and uh, economic policy observing mm. and. He was frustrated by the fact that people seemed to think that because he had achieved a little bit of success and started to get a little bit of money, why was he not buying into the the fiction that this economy was the correct way of doing things and that anybody who sat below it did so because of their own foolish choices?
0: It's seen as biting the hand that feeds you. Yeah. If you're climbing up the ladder, why are you not kissing the ladder every rung of the way up?
1: And stomping the rungs beneath you so that nobody else can chase you up it.
0: Bottom sees Mail and Edmondson now in their 30s as Richie and Eddie, a pair of impoverished buffoons living in a shitty flat in Hammersmith, London. Richie is desperate to get laid and Eddie drinks to obliteration. This three-season, 18-episode show was extremely theatrical and arguably reached its peak in a series of live tours where they could say fuck at last... But more importantly, inject more pathos into the lives of these two, let's face it, misogynistic wretches. The way they see women is appalling. Mm. However, all the gags are at their expense as they bicker and curse and puke and fart and fight. Women are always seen as, within the context of bottom, as being unattainable Mm. because women are seen as normal members of society, whereas these guys are gutter wastrels.
1: Absolutely. Uh, One of the sections that amuses me the most is one where Richie sets his sights on on the queen because uh, the queen is about as attainable as an ordinary woman to these guys she's it's like if we're going to lust after somebody it it might as as well be be the the queen. queen that's how much chance we have of actually getting some
10: think of
0: the life eddie birds booze the queen
3: well that's an unusual philosophical stance Yes, I know, I think I put my trousers on too quickly just now. Oh, stick to the point, Eddie, I thought we were talking philosophy. Well,
11: we were, but your
3: philosophy is bollocks. So let's talk bollocks! But that's all we ever do! So let's do what we always do! God, and so it goes on, day after day, year in, year out, slime in this year, slime in
8: that here. Don't you ever yearn for change? <laughs>
0: Uh, But yeah, they, they vainly attempt to improve their situation every week, only for it to inevitably get worse, marking time on the vine to stave off their existential horror. That comes out much more in the live shows because Richie in particular thinks more deeply and it feels like he's just touching the edge of utter despair. It always felt like a slapstick waiting for Godot and a graceless, unbearably crude version of Withan and I. Withan and I don't fight. Mm. Not really. They bicker with each other, but they don't beat each other up. Um, and the violence that they experience is all other people threatening them.
1: Yeah, yeah. I Honestly, I... They
0: are also both massive cowards. Yeah,
1: I'd not thought of this until you put the... Much th-
0: like the Shakespearean character, Falstaff.
1: Well, indeed. I'd not thought of this until you grouped all of these together, but there is an element of this that could be argued to be the overview of what Britain was going through as a nation during this period, which was in the fact that on the world stage, we were Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. We were not the central characters anymore. We were not up front leading the charge. We were, at best, Grover Dill.
11: Yeah.
9: And maybe it's a mutual love of aggression, you know, because between 1408 and 1945, Britain was involved in 75 wars, which is a good number of wars, when you consider one of them was the Hundred Years' War. (laughs) Would have been a bit dull on the medieval news tonight. War, 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 and war. But on a lighter note, demons were driven from a pig today in Gloucester. (laughs) I don't know what it is, I don't know what we're hanging out with America It's embarrassing, like some nerdy kid hanging around with this sort of and great bully It's just really embarrassing, America's like the bully of the world going up to countries going Give us your sweets or I'll smash your face in And Britain leans around the back and goes Yeah... It's some kind of British, It's some sort of post-imperial malaise, you know, you can see it in certain people's eyes, you know. there's a kind of a, an ennui, a sort of acceptance that the greatest things have been to pass, you know. They asked Ivan Isovich one year, do you think you might win Wimbledon? He said, it is my destiny! <laughs> you can't argue with that! That's the British way, isn't it? It's not the winning, it's the taking part. Yeah, we don't even take part. Well, it's not the taking part, it's the sense of futile despair.
0: I love all of the above. I have lived in squalor. I have had that frustration coursing through my veins and I've felt that listless desperation and insane nuclear meltdown egotism so it's important to note that while now and I is an extremely acquired taste it's probably only going to be funny for folks of a certain sense of humor and to those people it will be hilarious because they'll be like I feel something about even if they can't articulate it they'll feel something of what they're seeing on screen the more introspective the observer and the more of this specific kind of hardship they've endured The more of a sense of pathos, tragedy, and the absurd inevitability of imminent total failure and ruin they are likely to feel. You said yesterday this was the saddest time you'd ever seen this Mm. film. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's not sad like, say, a Ken Loach movie is sad. It's not that sense of these are people who have zero control over their destiny and are... Uh, entirely trapped by their circumstances. They are trapped, but there are, there is evidence within the story that both of them could get themselves out of this situation if they had the inclination mm. and, the, and the motivation.
0: They're often fed ways out and uh, eschew them, mm. specifically with No More Than I, whose actual name is Marwood. It's never said in the film and it's never on the, in the credits, but it's, his name in the script is Marwood. Mm, yeah. It is important to note... That the film is not peddling the dangerous assertion that poor people are poor because they choose to be. Withnell's problem is not that he's poor, it's that he's Withnell.
4: I have some extremely distressing news. We've just run out of wine, what are we going to do about it? I feel dreadful, I feel really dreadful. So do I, so does everybody. Listen to this, Curse of the Superman. I took drugs to win medals, says top athlete Jeff Wode. Where's the coffee? In a world-exclusive interview, 33-year-old shot-footer Jeff Wode, who weighs 317 pounds, admitted taking massive doses of anabolic steroids, a drug bound in sport. He used to get in bad tempers and act out, says his wife. He used to pick on me, but now he's stopped. He's much better in our sex life and in our general life. Jesus Christ! This huge, thatched head with its earlobes and cannonball is now considered sane. Jeff Wode is feeling better and is now prepared to step back into society and start tossing his orb about. Look at him. Look at Jeff Wode. His head must weigh 50 pounds on its own. Imagine the size of his balls. Imagine getting into a fight with a fucker. Please, I don't feel good. That's what you'd say. But that wouldn't wash with Jeff. No. He'd like a bit of pleading. Add spice to it. In fact, he'd probably tell you what he was gonna do before he did it. I'm gonna pull your head off. No, please, don't pull my head off. I'm gonna pull your head off because I don't like your head. Have you got soup? Why didn't I get any soup? Coffee. (laughs) will not use a cup like any other human being? Why don't you wash up occasionally like any other human being? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you call me inhumane? Well, I didn't call you inhumane. You merely imagined it. Calm down. Right, you fucker. I'm going to do the washing up. No, no you can't. No, it's impossible, I swear. I've, I've looked into it. Listen to me, listen to me. There are things in there. There's a tea bag growing. You haven't slept in 60 hours. You're in no state to tackle it. Wait till the morning. We'll go in together. This is the morning. Stand aside. You don't understand. I
7: think there may be something living in there. I think there may be something
4: alive. What do you mean? A rat? It's possible. Then the fucker will rule the day.
1: But I mean, they, they say a couple of times that he has parents that could get him out of this. Yes, Marwood.
0: One of the a first of a things, things he says. Uh, sense to uh, Marwood says call your dad ask him for some money mm. and uh, Withnall says why don't you call your father and immediately just like we never hear talk of that again but the yeah. expression he presses it again and Withnall gives it in the pub and Withnall gives him a kind of a grimace and changes the subject him and the uh, admiral are not getting on it yes. would appear
1: Yeah, and at the end who is it who is effectively bailing Marwood out of the situation he says my dad's going to come and pick up the rest of my stuff Bingo. and he'll sort the car out for you <laughs>
11: Yeah. Uh
0: what they're heading towards is that um Marwood will be getting out of this at the end. Like it, it it's a purgatorial existence and Marwood's going to be able to get out and Withnell is stuck and he can't get himself out. Mm. So while he is an awful person, you can't help but like I can't help but feel sorry for him you could watch this whole film and go fuck you you did all this to yourself and you're awful mm. but I feel for not
1: absolutely I mean fundamentally one of the things that traps them both and this it when you look at it from the outside it is very easy to say oh well this is such an easy thing to get out of it really isn't when you're stuck in it it really mm. isn't but they what they are desperately searching for is some form of external validation to say to them you are worth getting out of this Marwood step out at the end although it's his dad that comes and helps him post credits presumably to, mm. to get sorted the thing that starts to lift him is somebody else saying to him you've got this role yeah. you've got this part they're we both actors you're worth something
0: they're both actors and and uh, uh Withnell spends a lot of the film ranting about his agent not calling him with parts and then when he gets a part it's understudy to someone else and he rejects it yeah Uh, And he, you know, swears at his agent and slams the phone down. Mm. Whereas uh, I goes to uh, the audition he got asked for and then got given the lead because he's speculating. He's not so proud that he won't do shitty jobs and ends up actually getting ahead as a result of that.
1: Indeed. But what they are both lacking is an internal sense of... I'm worth something, and it's it's worth doing something about my situation. Mm. They have a fragile, superficial ego version of that, but because it is so brittle, mm. it doesn't take much to shatter it.
0: And this would just be depressing as fuck to watch if it weren't so blackly funny the whole way through. And again, acquired taste, certain sense of humor. But if you laugh at this sort of thing, and by now I'll already have played several clips, mm. uh, you'll be able to sort of chuckle your way through the horror in a kind of a sympathetic way. Yeah,
1: yeah. There is very much a sense of, well, you've got to laugh, haven't you?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a kind of a, a British peculiarity. <laughs> it's a
1: very British peculiarity. Look at our weather. We have to have
0: that. Yeah. And this, this film highlights the British weather and how fucking depressing it is. The, the irony is, like, this actually reminds me a little bit of like, what was going on in America at the time. The equivalent is Midnight Cowboy.
3: Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words saying. Only the echoes of my
12: mind. You
0: ever seen that one? Yeah. John Voigt and uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman, we're never gonna cover this one, are uh, effectively practically vagrants in new, uh, new York City. John Voigt is a city boy who's like, gosh, shucks. Hoffman is uh, more of a uh, artful dodger named Rizzo who uh, is more wily and has been on the streets, but he's also been kicked more and like
1: the lamp not the rat
0: Yeah. <laughs> and they, they share a sort of an odd little friendship, but it's a, it's an uneven one of, of like of mice and men where um, one of them is just this affable you know nice guy and the other one is so beaten down by the world he bites back all the time, often without needing to. And by the end of the film, it's during New York in the winter, or, or at least the fall, and um, Rizzo starts deteriorating and gets bronchitis or something, and his health starts to deplete. And they, John Voight gets him on a bus to Florida, which is this lovely, warm, like, baking-hot place where your chest condition would probably clear up. And by the time they get there, Rizzo is dead. And it's really sad, because it's almost like they could have gotten out of this situation, but they they had to leave New York. It was killing both of them. It did not have the streets paved with gold that Voight thought. He's got his eyes wide open and his heart wide open for the world, and he survives because he's already strong. The world hasn't beaten him as much as it has Rizzo. Uh, but that also feels like Withnan and I, in that it's, it's two people uh, at, uh, at the mercy of an unkind world, living in absolute squalor, and the slow depletion begins to kill one of them while the other manages to get out. Even a stopped clock gives the right time twice a day.
4: And for once, I'm inclined to believe that withnal is right. We are indeed drifting into the arena of the unwell, making an enemy of our own future. What we need is harmony, fresh air, stuff like that. Wasn't much in the tube. Nothing left for you.
5: Why don't you ask your father for some money? If we had some money, we could go away.
4: Why don't you ask your father? It's going to be so cold in here, like Greenland in here. We've got to get some boobs. It's the only solution for this intense cold. Something's got to be done. We can't go on like this. I'm a trained actor reduced to the state of a bum. I mean, look at us. Nothing that reasonable members of society demand as their rights. No fridges, no televisions, no phones. Much more of this I'm in a private of meals on wheels.
5: What happened to your cigar commercial? Please? That's what I want to know.
4: What happened to my cigar commercial? What happened to my agent? Bastard must have died. September. It's a bad patch. Rubbish. I haven't seen Gilga down the labour exchange. Why doesn't he retire? Oh, look at this little bastard. Oh, it lands plum row for top Italian director. Of course he does. Probably on a tenner a day. And I know what for. Two-pound tenner tip and a fiver for his arse. Have you been at the controls? What are you talking you The thermostats. What have you done to them? I haven't touched them. And why has my head gone numb? I must have some booze. I demand to have some
6: booze!
0: so the plot runs thus Withnell and Marwood borrow a car and drive to Cumbria to stay in a cottage they drive back to London and Marwood gets a job that's it that's all that happens superficially speaking if you're going to look at this film in terms of events there's a couple of other things you could add but none of them seem like they're plot bearing that's just literally what happens they go on holiday by mistake (laughs) Uh, But it's not the events, it's about the intensity of feeling interspersed with numbness and bewilderment and even more aimless Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, also illustrated by Ralph Steadman, Mm -hmm. likewise mourning the death of the fleeting bird of optimism in the 1960s Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas Has it been five years? Six?
4: It seems like a lifetime The kind of peak never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. But no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time in the world,
0: whatever it meant. Because here's the thing, in America, in the 1960s, if you were at this level on the breadline, but if you were somewhere warm, you would at least survive. But if you were somewhere cold and damp, you may as well be in Victorian times. You'd get the black lung, and that would be it. The country and its weather system would finish you off. Which is why hearing about power grids going out in the winter, now in the 2020s, freaks me out because the the idea that we could end up returning to that and people actually being in danger as the cold draws in we should be beyond this as a society. We should have the support networks ready to set up so that people can stay warm, so that power can be restored. We should be on top of this Human life is not something that you can just sort of sc- scratch away with the stroke of a pen if it doesn't hit your quota um. Okay, so Withnal himself, let's describe Withnal. He's a paranoid, self loathing narcissist. A lying, mendacious, cowardly, prancing, swearing, furious, ranting, self deluded, selfish, drunken, pathetic asshole. But because he makes you laugh, you kind of root for him. <laughs> Now Richard E. Grant in playing this character had never gotten drunk before And Bruce Robinson originally said no, that you're not going to be able to play this role unless you can get drunk But eventually they settled on a a weird kind of compromise You go home, get drunk, then come back and harness that for the performance Mm. Now Richard E. Grant is actually teetotal because he's allergic to alcohol It fucks him up
1: Indeed so Bruce Robinson was rather putting his health in danger Yeah, absolutely In order to insist on this And the irony is that one of the people that they had screen tested for the role was Bill Nye, Who is apparently somewhat of a drinker So he was well Or well, at aware. least at the
0: time he was much more of a Well, he was actually too drunk at that point
1: Well, Robinson's reasons for not wanting to cast him was We can't both be constantly pissed on set
0: yeah. Well, we need you to be acting drunk but not, but not actually, actually unreliable <laughs> But yeah, so Richard E. Grant, who's a very nice chap, went home, got drunk on champagne and, and vodka. vodka.
1: Not a good combination.
0: Came in the next day. He puked after every drink because his body was going, whoa, no. Nope. And he managed to attain the most amusing and seemingly realistic drunkard that I think I've seen, uh, uh, Robinson specifically said that he'd ever seen on camera, Mm. Um, but I'd agree in terms of, he he goes through various stages in this, from sort of self-loathing and shouting, to just being kind of giddy and giggly and sleepy, uh, to just sort of slurring his speech and saying oddball things, Mm. but it all feels very authentic to somebody who is drunk. Dylan Moran has a similar kind of, Patter in his comedy
8: mm. or release your potential that's another one now that's a very very dangerous idea you should stay away from your potential i mean that is something you should leave absolutely alone don't di- you'll mess it up it's potential leave it and anyway it's like your bank balance you know you always have a lot less than you think so you don't look at it don't know Leave it as a kind of, it's a locked door within yourself. And, and that's how it should be, because then at least in your mind, the interior will always be palatial, you know? Wonderful gleaming marble floors, brocaded drapes, mullioned windows covered in mullions, whatever they are, and flamingos serving drinks, pianos shooting out canapes into the mouths of elegant men and women who are exchanging witticisms. Yes, this reminds me of the time I was in Budapest with Pinky. We were trying to steal a goose from the casino.
11: Pwong, <laughs> volleyball.
8: Don't open the door, because it won't be like that. All you can see will be one tiny, grey, startling little cat with diarrhea, sitting on a mattressless, iron sprung bed. With its huge eyes mewing at you. <laughs> Smoking as well, probably. As, <laughs> as an emphysemic landlady untangles her pop socks in the background. <laughs> and some terrible guy, the color of an aubergine, rounds the corner holding a mug of beef tea, wearing a string vest, and says,
10: <laughs>
8: <laughs> That's your potential. But look at the people who use it, who do actually give it everything, you know? Like, great athletes, you know, the Beckhams or Roy Keynes of this world. People charging, running up and down the field, swearing and shouting at each other. Are they happy? No, they're destroying themselves. Who's happy? You, the fat fucks watching them. With a beer can, balanced on your ninth belly. Roaring advice at the best athletes in the world. (laughs) You wanker! It's not going to make you happy. It'll depress you when you find out how little you've got, you know? You don't want to find out that the most you could possibly achieve, if you gave it your all, if you harvested every screed of energy within you and devoted yourself to improving yourself, that... All you would get to would be maybe eating less cheesy snacks. <laughs> Nobody needs to know this. Yeah, I, I do get what you mean
1: about it's important to be acting drunk rather than be drunk, though, because ultimately, with Null, is a very eloquent mm. drunk. Most of the people who've I've ever, who I've ever witnessed being very, very drunk, they get aggressive and then they fall asleep.
0: Mm uh either way I wouldn't uh, being the director Bruce Robinson I would not have charged him with go home and do this I would probably say something along the lines of let's face it you're channeling me here all of that bitterness and shouting at the world is coming from him if you watch him in interview you get quite how much is in there how about we go out you drink baby sham or does Baby Sham Baby even Sham have... Baby
1: Sham has alcohol in it. it. Not much, but some. Blo- you drink Half a
0: bottle water. of Blue Nun? Tonic water would tonic have been water. your options in those okay. days. You maybe. drink tonic water. I will get drunk. You watch me and, and then notes. do that.
6: Yeah.
0: <laughs> that would be the responsible thing to do as a director. Mm-hmm. You might disgust your lead actor. You might drive away your lead actor and have to recast. But it's better than poisoning them. One thing that kind of it is unusual about this is that femininity never enters into it. They, they never think or talk about women. Mm. I, th- it, like I said, it is, it is soaked in maleness. But there's no romantic attraction aside from uh, Monty later on. And there's no sense of that anyone could love anyone. It almost seems like the love has never occurred to them or or even just sex, yeah,
1: I know it what is you a mean.
0: sexless world. it
1: is a sexless world, definitely. I would say there is there are shades of the potential for a love that could be called romantic in the way that Withnell looks at Marwood as he walks off towards the station at the end. Mm. There is a longing there.
0: This is what I mean about uh, we're going to read where there are not necessarily uh, intentions. Um, I think Robinson or someone else said sort of with a hand wave some people have interpreted a homoeroticism in this Mm. and it's like dude there is a homoeroticism whether you wanted there to be one or not these are two men who live very close to each other and feel very strongly about one Mm. another because they are each other's world
1: yeah they're they're comfortable with each other in in terms of physicality they sleep in a bed together Mm. they are at at varying stages of of nakedness around each other and there doesn't appear to be any discomfort with that whether there is any that there might be a sexual attraction between them is frankly irrelevant because the environment in which they are living is so squalid and loathsome. Frankly, the idea of ever feeling even vaguely horny in that environment is so alien to me, it wouldn't matter who I was living with. I could be living with Chris Evans in that house. I would not want to have sex.
0: You'd reach down and find a loose saveloy that someone had stored <laughs>
1: for later. <laughs> And go, I did not think that's what that was.
0: Yeah, no, I was going to eat it later.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a point at which Withnall puts fish and chip wrappings in the toilet and doesn't even flush it. He just treats it like a bin. I mean, what the hell?
0: (laughs) He covers... Also, there's the coldness... Which is a really good way of killing any sexual harbor
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Like um, you, you can be under the covers, and that's pretty much the only time when you get a feel. it. Because if you're walking around freezing fucking cold, Withnall at one point strips down to his underpants and coat and rubs his entire body with deep heat uh, in a desperate in a desperate attempt, attempt to to just to get warm, yeah. just to cheat the system. <laughs> mm. it, it's it's sexless because the world, the environment they're in, defies. Attraction yes. and, and warmth of any kind. Indeed. So whenever you get any sweetness, kindness, warmth or uh, generosity between them or someone else, it feels precious, mm. but it's fleeting. It can never be held on to. Indeed. And I, Marwood, in consequence, while Withnell's screaming and shouting about the, what the world owes him because he's fantastic, I is a bundle of nerves and worry, and especially at the beginning of the film. He's coming down from amphetamines and he's in the middle of an overdose. Like, the world is not trusted. One of the first things he talks about after we watch uh, him reading the papers to A Whiter Shade of Pale... He's looking at people in the cafeteria that he's gone to get breakfast in and everyone looks like a Ralph Stedman painting. They're twisted, disgusting, Mm. like he can't relate to people. And they're all reading newspapers that are celebrity sex scandals. It's another reason why this film is sexless. Sex exists only in the papers to be ogled at and never to be had.
6: Yeah,
0: indeed. He's worried about the state of the world, but in an abstract sense. Like, everything out there is going to go wrong, and it always seems like he's waiting for something terrible to happen. Like, he, he can see they keep signing on their own benefits. He sees their position as incredibly tentative. And it's justified. Late in the uh, uh, film, he receives a telegram that says he's got a audition in London. And then when they finally get back, they get given a bunch of old letters, including old unpaid checks and a notice of eviction, which means that quite literally, while Marlwood is going off to Manchester to be rescued by his father to a better situation, withnal is about to become homeless in a world this cruel. Or should I say, according to the words of the late, great George Carlin, houseless.
11: And when we're not invading some sovereign nation, or setting it on fire from the air, which is more fun, then we're usually declaring war on something here at home. Did you ever notice that? We love to do that, don't we? We love to declare war on things here in America. Anything we don't like about ourselves, we have to declare war on it. Don't do anything about it, we just declare war on it. We got a war. It's the only it's the only metaphor we have in our public discourse for solving a problem. It's called declaring a war. We got a war on poverty, the war on crime, war on litter, the war on cancer, the war on drugs. But you ever notice there's no war on homelessness, is there? Nah. No war on homelessness. You know why? There's no money in that problem. There's no money in that problem. Nobody stands. It's true. Nobody stands to get rich off of that problem. You could find a solution to homelessness where the corporate swine and the politicians could steal a couple of million dollars each. You'd see the streets of America begin to clear up pretty goddamn quick. I'll guarantee you that. I will guarantee you that. Now, so... I'll tell you what they got to do about homelessness. First thing, change the name of it. Change the name of the condition. It's not homelessness, it's houselessness. It's houses these people need. A home is an abstract idea. A home is a setting. It's a state of mind. These people need houses, physical, tangible structures. But where are you gonna put them? Where are you gonna build them? Nobody wants you to build low-cost housing near their house. People don't want it near them. We got something in this country, you've heard of it, it's called NIMBY, N-I-M-B-Y. Not in my backyard. People don't want any kind of social help Located anywhere near them You try to open up a halfway house Try to open up a rehab center for drugs or alcohol People say, not in my backyard People don't want anything near them Especially if it might help somebody else Part of the great American spirit of generosity We're always told about (laughs) Big, generous American nation Ask an Indian about that Ask an Indian how generous this country is. If you can find one, you got to locate the Indian first. We've made them just a little difficult to find. Or if you need current data, select a black family at random and ask them how generous this country has been. People don't want anything near them, even if it's something they believe in, something they think society needs, like prisons. Everybody wants that, right? Everybody wants more prisons. That's the new answer to all of our problems. Lock a lot of motherfuckers up. Everybody wants more prisons. They say, build more prisons! but not here. I got just a place for low-cost housing. I have solved this problem. I know where we can build housing for the homeless. Golf courses, perfect, golf courses. Just what we need, plenty of good land in nice neighborhoods, land that is currently being wasted on a meaningless, mindless activity, engaged in primarily by white, well-to-do male businessmen who use the game to get together to make deals to carve this country up a little finer among themselves. I am getting tired. Really tired. Just the design of the game speaks of arrogance. Think of how big a golf course is. The ball is that fucking big! What do these pin-headed pricks need with all that land? There are over 17,000 golf courses in America. They average over 150 acres apiece. That's over 3 million acres. That's 4,820 square miles. You could build two Rhode Islands and a Delaware for the homeless on the land currently devoted to this meaningless, mindless, arrogant, elitist, racist. Racist. There's another thing. The only blacks you'll find in country clubs are
0: carrying trays. One of the only people that comes around to their apartment is Danny. A deeply, permanently stoned drug dealer. He's played by Ralph Brown, who, when you hear his voice, you'll remember him doing pretty much a uh, kid's version of the same character in Wayne's World 2. Mm. And I'll uh, vouch that this is one of the voices I can do pitch perfect, much like Gollum. Nasty hobbits, rubble little, nice fish. Like, I don't get to do it much because no one knows who he is. But (laughs) I'm really good at it. So I'm taking this one for a ride. And he's only done
12: this character twice. But it's absolutely immortal. He has a peculiar way of speaking, which is both precise and agonisingly slow. He seems to be centred and perhaps party to certain wisdom about the world but comes up with such strange idioms and theories that what he says may, in fact, be untrustworthy.
5: You're looking very beautiful, man. Have you been away? St Peter preached the epistles to the apostles, looking like that. I see you're wearing a suit. What's it got to do with you? No need to get uptight, man. I was merely making an observation. I happened to be looking for a suit for the coal man two weeks ago. For reasons I can't really discuss with you, the coal man had to go to Jamaica. Got busted coming back through Heathrow. Goes into court in his caftan and the bell. <coughs> this doesn't go down at all well. They can handle the caftan. They can't handle the bell. So there's this judge sitting there in the cape like fucking Batman with this really rather far out looking hat. Wait, No, man. This was more like a long white hat. So he looks at the carman and he says, what's all this? This is a court, man. This ain't fancy dress. And the carman looks at him and says, you think you look normal, your honor? I'm afraid I can't offer you gentlemen anything. It's all right, Danny. We decided to lay off for a bit. That's what it's I thought. Cool. Except for personal use, I concur with you. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking of retiring and going into business. Doing what? The toy industry. Yeah, my partner's got a really good idea for making dolls. His name's Presuming Ed. It's just to give him the idea. She got a doll on Christmas what pisses itself. Really? Yeah, then you got to change its drawers for it. It's horrible, really, but they like that, the little girls. So we're going to make one that shits itself as well
4: shits
5: itself. He's an expert. He's building the prototype now. Why is he behaving so tightly?
4: Because a gang of cheroot vendors considered a haircut beyond the limit of my abilities. I don't advise a haircut, man.
5: All hairdressers are in the employment of the government. Hair are your aerials. They pick up signals from the cosmos and transmit them directly into the brain. This is the reason bald-headed men are uptight. What absolute twaddle. Has he just been busted? No.
4: Then why is he wearing that old suit? Old suit? This suit was cut by hawks of Savile Row. Just because the best tailoring you've ever seen is above your fucking appendix doesn't mean anything. Don't get uptight with me, man.
5: Because if you do, I'll have to give you a dose of medicine. And if I spike you, you'll know
4: you've been spoken to. You wouldn't spike me. You're too mean. Besides, there's nothing invented I couldn't take.
5: If I medicined you, you'd think a brain tumor was a birthday present.
4: I could take double anything you could. Very,
5: very foolish
4: words, man. He's right. Pizzle. Look at him mechanism's gone. He's had more drugs than you've had hot dinners. I'm not having this shag sack insulting me. Let him get his drugs out. This doll is extremely dangerous.
5: It has voodoo qualities. (coughs) Trade. Phenodihydrochloride Benzylix. Street. The embalmer. Bores. I'll
4: swallow it and run a mile. Cool your boots, man. This pill's valued at two quid. Two quid? You're out of your mind. That's Sensmith, man. You can stuff it up your arse for nothing and fuck off while you're doing it.
5: No need to insult me, man.
4: I was leaving anyway.
0: Have either you got shoes? And I think he represents a kind of a version of them who is not the stiff rod that Withnell represents. If you just look at Withnell's profile in the film and his... his Form. He's this, like, too tall for the world, like, angry, pointy stick with his hair sort of scraped back and gelled, and these gaunt eyes and very pale flesh. Whereas Danny has got this sort of big mop of curls and uh, no shoes and velvet pl- velour trousers, and uh, sort of just. He's
1: very fluid.
0: Yeah. He kind of. Uh, he's both. An identifiable stoner for stoners to laugh at, but also uh, an example of someone that when the world slams
12: down, he just kind of goes, oh, be seated," Just sort of take a step back, and then you'll see you are, in fact, elastic. And
0: he's someone that the world won't crush and will, in fact, just keep on living.
1: Because he skirts around those anxieties mm. rather than continually slamming himself up yeah. against them like they do.
0: Some racism rears its head here. The, the term spade gets uttered twice in the film. It's said with such casuality that you have to remind yourself, oh, it's fine. Everyone was fucking racist in those days. That's fine. They weren't, and racism and racial ignorance is never fine. That's just the prevailing idea. Like, there were there were anti-abolitionists as soon as there was slavery.
1: Well the context of the there there is some language in this both homophobic and racist and sexist which you can feel is,
0: justifiably uncomfortable listening is, to. It is
1: like you said it is delivered with remarkable casuality and it is not fine but it does give you a sense that this is how a lot of people interacted interacted interact with the world they they use these words and it doesn't occur to them what they what the wider connotations are
0: I've got here that the juxtaposition of uh, Marwood's constant super serious worry with the self-obsessed verbal explosions of withnal powers the absurdity if you put these two together, they have the kind of uh uh, chemistry where if it was just one they would become really irritating but the combination Mm. makes for a uh like a compelling couple that you kind of want to watch bounce around the place and crash into things like whenever they go to the pub in this something bad usually happens and it's just because they, they walk in and piss people off by either the things they say or how they look or just being there.
1: Yeah. Well, like you said, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they're also pain and panic. Yeah. Withnal yeah. is in a constant oh, state of pull. exposed nerve pain and Marwood is constantly panicking about everything going on around him in case it gets worse.
0: You meant in the abstract, right? Not the characters in Disney's Hercules. No, I meant Disney's the characters Hercules. from
1: Disney's Hercules, but also in the abstract.
0: <laughs> I've already mentioned Gerald Scarfe, who did the concept art for that film. <laughs> it all ties in, folks. It really does. But it's it's also anti-establishment. They, uh, they are rejected by everyone and barely tolerated by those who live a transactional relationship with them mm. because they've barely got any money So, like, the little bit of money they do have that they spend on booze, like, that, they will be tolerated while they do that, but then they are ousted. Mm. This is never better exemplified than when they gatecrash that bastion of genteel British living, the tea room that the elderly, born in the 19th century, frequent so that they might partake of earl grey, scones, and clotted cream.
4: All right, here what
6: do
4: you want cake all right here no we're closing we're leaving in We one cake and tea didn't you hear she said she'd closed what do you want in here cake what's it got to do with you i happen to be the proprietor now would you leave ah i'm glad you're the proprietor i was gonna have to have a word with you anyway we're working on a film up here. Location, see? We might want to do a film in here. You're drunk. Just bring out the pipe cake. cake and fine wine.
1: If you don't leave, we'll call the police.
4: Balls. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. Miss Blenner has it. Telephone the police. It's all right. We are multi-millionaires. We shall buy this place and fire you immediately. Yes, we'll buy this place. And we'll install a fucking jukebox in here. <laughs> and liven you stiffs up a bit. The police, Miss Brenner has it. Just say there are a couple of drunks in the Penrith tea rooms and we want them removed. We are not drunks. We are multi-millionaires. Hurry up, Mebs. We'll keep them here till they arrive. You won't keep us anywhere. Well, buy this place and have it knocked down.
3: Right, right, right.
0: Please, please. Again, from the outside, uh, as if, if if you're not an alcoholic, it's easy to sort of look at the amount that withnal in particular drinks throughout this. Mm-hmm. There's a drinking game where you 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 have to imbibe everything that Withnell does throughout the film and it's liable to kill the average person. Mm-hmm. It would certainly kill Richard E. Grant if he did it so in that short space of time.
1: One thing that I noticed with the set dressing, he is surrounded by... Bottles of booze, specifically empty bottles of booze. But they are, a lot of them are high quality bottles of booze. And I think somebody, it's been repeatedly pointed out, things like they're also surrounded by uh, antiques and there's there's ornaments and things in the house that that if it occurred to them to do so, they could sell the contents of the house in order to assist them in better living but it doesn't occur to them or they're renting a property fully furnished and none of it is theirs yes.
0: or just their antiques now but not theirs <laughs> oh a picture of the blue boy that's worth uh, a quid
1: <laughs> true and a lack of ebay would mean if they didn't yeah. have the contacts they wouldn't necessarily yeah. be able to sell they them. Might, i'm pretty sure danny could offload some of it
0: they might get 10 and 6 and then and immediately spend it on booze because mm. that numbness is welcoming when everything's so aggressive and hurtful
6: yeah
1: there's there is an irony to it as well though which is the 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 seeking a, a form of sedation when you feel that exposed and that raw in your in your normal state there there ends up being this kind of vicious circle about it because the more drugs you take the more booze you drink the more fags you smoke when it all wears off you now feel how you did before, plus 10. Mm. So you do it again. And now you feel how you felt before, plus 20. And it just keeps building.
0: And just adding chips of withdrawal to yourself.
2: drink my
6: wine. yours, Little tarts,
4: they love it. Listen, I'm trying to drive this thing as quietly as possible. If you don't shut up or get stopped by the police. Give me the bottle. Look at that. Look at that. Accident black spot. These aren't accidents. They're throwing themselves into the road, gladly. Throwing themselves into the road to escape all this hideousness. Throw yourselves into the road, darling. You haven't got a chance.
2: There are many here among.
0: When they go on holiday, they borrow their Withnall's uncle's cottage in Cumbria in the Lake District. It's actually Penrith. Yes. They're trying to escape from this misery. So it's kind of like Midnight Cowboy. Mm. And They're trying to go somewhere that's green. The
1: idea that if they could just get out of London, things would feel a little bit better for a bit. It's not a bad impulse.
0: But unfortunately, when they get there, it's pissing down with rain. It's miserable and dark, even during the daytime. And it just welcome it's,
1: to the Lake District.
0: <laughs> in in some ways, often the, uh, the the greenness of the countryside accentuates how wet everything is mm, because the water clings to the plants. Yeah,
1: that that's something that it is difficult to get across to people who don't know what Britain looks like. It is. In places beautifully lush and fantastically, like there is greenery everywhere and and plant life throughout and trees and crops and all sorts of things that should look amazing. But for some reason, everything is coated with a layer of grey.
0: And drizzle. The
1: first time I ever went to Ireland and saw green without the drizzle, Mm. I went, oh my God, is that what grass is actually supposed to look like?
0: And I've heard, you know, well, we wouldn't have all this green if we didn't have this weather. Then we went to Italy, and the Tuscan countryside is fucking gorgeous and baking in the sun all the time. Mm. And it's like, no, we could have this instead. And in a few years, we probably will, (laughs) whether we like it or not. Anyway, um, I actually think the drizzle will just intensify until we're underwater. Mm. Uh, Apparently,
1: uh, plant-wise, spring is now coming Just shy of a month early. Right. Okay.
0: Uh, But uh, but so, yeah, they've gone to escape their their immediate situation and they find they've brought their situation with them. They're still cold. They're still hungry. They've still got no money. They still have no direction. Absolutely. And then they find themselves wandering around the countryside wearing plastic bags on their feet.
1: Because while the impulse to escape London is... Is strictly speaking a healthy one and that could give them an opportunity to try and recover themselves ultimately wherever you go there you are
0: and Withnal's first impulse is to get as drunk as possible so it's, it's <laughs> this is not about breaking cycles or it's about a limp attempt at it but making sure that that momentum carries you over into doing the same thing again now they borrow this cottage from uncle monty who is the gay character we've been talking about played by richard griffiths oh side note we've not mentioned i is played by paul mcgann and i would be remiss not to mention that he played one of the doctors in doctor who the eighth the eighth dot uh, it changes around now because they put another one in between true um but uh, yeah, that's that's for you, Kevin. Put a t- take a <laughs> shot, Kevin. <laughs> but not lighter fluid. No,
1: for the love of God, no.
0: Uh, Paul McGann, and he is actually reunited with Ralph Brown in Alien Three. David Fincher was trying to stage a Withnail and I reunion. He actually wanted Richard E. Grant to play Clemens. <gasps> Uh, who ended up being played by Charles Dance and Charles Dance said that he did it in honour uh, as a tribute to Richard E. Grant like Richard E. Grant I'm like no nah, dude that is a very Charles Dance performance and it it's is, excellent it, it is excellent. not Richard E. Grant yeah
1: no I, I, I can see how the nuts and bolts of the character would have fit quite well as Withnall mm-hmm. but no Charles Dance plays him very differently
0: I could be wrong but I feel like uh, at the same time the, the thing that uh, uh, Richard E. Grant said no to Alien 3 on probably wisely and went and did it instead is a movie no one remembers, but is one of our absolute favourites. La story.
4: Ah, it's that sound? It's a nuisance. It's my damn testicles.
0: But yeah, Richard Griffiths, who plays uh, Uncle Vernon in uh, five of the eight Harry Potter films, uh, and did that role particularly fantastically, uh, is Uncle Monty, and he is an old, lovely, theatre-trained. Like you, you remember Asparagus Gus from Cats. Played by Ian McKellen. My
2: coat's very shabby, I'm sinless rig. And I suffer from palsy, which makes my paw shake. Yet I was, in my youth, quite the smartest of cats. Though no longer a terror to mice or to rats.
0: Mm, yes. And then there was the time the audience gave me seven M- cat M- calls. Yikes. Those two would get on really well. They'd like, probably put probably. those two in a room together, and they would reminisce about First Lady of the London Stage, Helen Hayes. And <laughs> Monty is very ostentatious and very like he's camp, but in in a kind of a sort of a beguiling a sort of ruminating. Theatrical, or almost he's, he's very avuncular Way, mm. he opines and Intellectualises, his home is Covered in art and chintz And it's kind of this insane clutter Of old books And he has this preening Cat that he loathes And it's like, why do you even have This cat if you hate it so much The cat can ruin his day Get Ian McKellen in To claw at your drapes Do you like vegetables?
2: I've always been fond of root crops, but I only started to grow last summer. I happen to think the cauliflower more beautiful than the rose. Chin chin. Do you grow geraniums? Oh, you little traitors. I think the carrot infinitely more fascinating than the geranium. Mmm. The carrot has mystery. Flowers are essentially tarts. Prostitutes for the bees. Mmm. There is, you will agree, a certain je ne sais quoi a very special about a firm young carrot. Mm, excuse me. Do help yourself another drink. What's all this? The
7: man's mad. Eccentric, eccentric. It's insane. Not only that, he's a raving homosexual.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you piece little parasite! How dare you! You little thug! How dare you! <laughs> Ungrateful little swine! Shall I get you a drink, Monty? Yes, 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 please, dear boy. You can prepare me a small rhesus negative Bloody Mary, and you must tell me all the news. I haven't seen you since you finished your last film.
4: Rather busy, Uncle. TV and stuff. My agent's attempting to wedge me towards the Royal Shakespeare Company again. Oh, splendid. He's just had an audition for rep. Oh,
2: splendid. So you're a thespian, too? Monty used to act. Well, I hardly say that. It's true I crept the boards in my youth, but I never really had it in my blood, and that's what's so essential, isn't it? Theatrical zeal in the veins. Alas, I have little more than vintage wine and memories. It is the most shattering experience of a young man's life when one morning he awakes and quite reasonably says to himself... I will never play the Dane. When that moment comes,
4: one's ambition ceases. Don't you agree? It's part I intend to play, Uncle. And you'll be marvellous. Where did you school? He went to the other place, Monty.
6: Oh,
2: you went to eat. Get
4: the damn little swine out of here!
2: It's trying to get itself in with you. It's trying for even more advantage. It's obsessed with its gut. It's like a bloody rugby ball now. It will die. It will die. Monty. Monty. No, 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 But You must leave. You must leave. Yet again, that oaf has destroyed my day. Listen, Monty. Could I just have a quick word with you in
0: private? Oh, very Well. Here, Withnall has been lying his ass off about their current rosy prospects and abundant acting gigs pouring in from attentive agents. Somehow the ruse pays off, and he gets the key to the cottage. Monty's got to be my second favourite character in this. Withnall li- lives rent-free in my heart, so at least he's gonna stay warm there. Monty takes an instant liking to Marwood, which is going to create some serious problems somewhere down the line.
1: There's an implication that he has to conduct trysts in secret. Yeah. um,
0: Which Monty feels... Otherwise
1: he runs the risk of of police involvement.
0: Yeah, which Monty feels deep, deep uh, uh, commiseration with, for he has clearly had to spend his entire life... Uh, being very careful about what he does and who he does Absolutely. it with.
1: as any gay man in that era would have had to live.
0: I mean, Oscar Wilde, one of the greatest playwrights of all time, incarcerated for gross indecency. He spent two years in jail from 1895 to 1897, got out and died three years later after developing meningitis. <sighs> You may say, well that was 75 years before this film. Alan Turing, one of the greatest British minds in computers in the 1940s, conducted a private homosexual relationship discovered by the police after a robbery investigation, arrested and disgraced by the very British government he had lent his genius to for so many years. He was given the choice between imprisonment or probation and probation was conditional upon his agreement to undergo hormonal physical changes designed to reduce libido. He accepted the option of injections for what was then called stilboastrol a synthetic estrogen this feminization of his body was continued for the course of one year the treatment rendering turing impotent and causing breast tissue to form fulfilling in the literal sense turing's prediction that no doubt i shall emerge from it all a different man but quite whom i've not found out his security clearance was removed he was barred from continuing with his cryptographic consultancy for the government. He was denied entry to the United States after his conviction, and two years later he committed suicide. It's so strange that his punishment entailed forcibly transitioning him to a trans woman, when if he had in fact been a trans woman, they probably would have hated that too. Just whatever he was that was outside the norm had to be changed. You'll be put on this program, we don't know what it does yet, we just know that it fucks you up and that's what we want. And that was in 1952, only 17 years before this film takes place. England calling gay men "puffers" was just England being nice, compared to how England had been previously. Because we're rotten to the core, as a society, and getting a little bit better, but that rot, has been there for a long, long while. So, um, yeah, Monty takes a particular liking to Marwood, and uh, in the asking uh, to borrow the uh, cottage, uh, gets it into his head, what if I go up and spend the time with them as well? So he becomes an unexpected uh, visitor uh, uh, later in their vacation. Now, the problems begin when he starts to make his move on Marwood, and he is eccentric enough to see what he wants to see, hear what he wants to hear, put two and two together and make 10. And a lengthy, deliberately very uncomfortable sequence that's actually uncomfortable at several more levels uh, begins in the tail end of, uh, or the beginning at least of act three of the uh, um, film when they're up in this uh, little uh, cottage, which does become quite cosy once they've actually managed to uh somehow murder a chicken and and sit it on a brick in the oven. <laughs> Get some firewood, bring in warmth and light. When Monty's there, it becomes more of a home. Mm-hmm. His home also, compared with their flat, is much more welcoming and alive. Absolutely. And it's, you feel it's like at least
1: clustered in a similar way, yeah. but it's not squalid.
0: Yeah. You feel like you, that there is a palpable loneliness to Monty but you feel like he's at least going to survive, whereas they are on the raggedy edge.
1: My hope for the uh, for what happens after this film, by the way, is that uh, Withnall runs away from the eviction and goes to live with Monty.
0: I would love that. And I love that it's left ambiguous. Originally, Withnall was going to uh, punch his own ticket by pouring wine into a double-barreled shotgun. They thought that that would be too dark. Yeah, it's too dark. It's also horrible and miserable, and it seals it off at the end. There is something to be said for all his lost endings. I've never been a massive fan of them myself. But that doesn't mean that there's no validity to an ending of despair. Because sometimes things are a cautionary tale.
8: Bastards!
4: You all suffer! I'll show the lot of you!
8: I'm gonna be a star!
0: (laughs) And sometimes despair can carry with it some kernel of hope. So for example, the kernel of hope is that Withnell, when he finds out that Marwood has got the job, rather than predictably going off into a rage, just says congratulations in this very sweet way and maintains that. He actually supports Marwood every step of the way towards his leaving. ...towards his leaving Withnall behind. Yeah. That's another reason why I like Withnell. yeah That when the, the chips were down... ...he stopped acting like a shit... ...and actually acted on conscience. Yeah.
1: There, there is an element to the way he plays out... ...those last few scenes of... ...please don't leave me. But it is very much a... Ch- ...almost a childlike... ...please don't leave me but if you must... Hmm. ...then I will follow you as long as you'll let me.
0: Like a greyhound that's being abandoned... Yeah, Monty is dead set On closing the gap Between him and uh, Marwood And uh, I'm going to Play the uh, scenario here for you Where it spills over From stop denying who you are Into being almost Unforgivably forceful Trigger warning for this scenario Of assault, jump forwards a few minutes If you want to skip it
2: Are you a sponge Or a stone What do you mean you like to experience all facets of life, or do you shut yourself off from new experience? I voted
7: conservative.
2: Are you faithful? No. Faithfulness isn't selective.
7: No, I quite agree. It's more a question of selecting to whom one will be faithful.
2: Have you selected? I'm terribly tired. I've been watching you all evening. You've been avoiding my eyes, haven't you? your eyes Mm. at luncheon you couldn't tear your gaze from mine this evening you barely looked at me what did he say to you nothing you can tell me i assure
7: you nothing monty i'm terribly tired i need to go to bed you must mustn't you
2: off you go then i'll sleep here It won't be the first time I've been left with the cult. Boy. Boy. I know you're not asleep, boy.
11: No, I'm not. What is it, Monty? What do you want?
2: had to come i tried not to oh, oh i tried not to
7: listen monty something i have to explain to you no,
2: you needn't explain he's told me everything he told me that first day you came to chelsea
7: what did, what's he told you
2: he told me about your arrest on the tottenham court road he told me about your problems how you feel your desires
5: problems what problems
2: you are a toilet trader he told you that You mustn't blame him. You mustn't blame yourself. I know how you feel and how difficult it is. And that's why you mustn't hold back, let it ruin your youth, as I nearly did over Eric. It's like a tide. Give in to it, boy. Go with it. It's society's crime, not ours.
7: I'm not homosexual, Monty. Yes, you are.
2: Of course you are. You're simply blackmailing your emotions to avoid the realities of your relationship with him.
8: What are you talking about? You love him,
2: and it isn't his fault he cannot love you any more than it's mine that I adore you. Couldn't we allow ourselves just this one moment of indiscretion? No, he need never know.
7: Don't care what he knows, Monty. You've got to go. You've got to leave.
2: If you want to humiliate me, humiliate me, I adore you. Tell him if you must. I no longer care. I mean to have you, even if it must be burglary.
7: It's
11: not me, it's him.
0: And at this stage, Marwood has to lie in order to let Monty down in a way that he can contextualise. He lied
7: to you. We are an affair. We have been for years. But he doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want anybody to know. We're both in it. We're we're obsessed with each other. But he's ashamed. He refuses to come out and accept what he is. That's why he's rejecting me while you're here. On my life, Monty, this is the first night we haven't slept together for six years. I can't cheat on him. It would kill him. But he told me you were in purgatory because he couldn't
2: love him. He's lying. Lying. Oh, my dear boy. I'd know that I would never
7: have attempted to come between you. I know that, Monty. I
4: respect you for your sensitivity. I thank you for it. But you must
6: leave. Yes.
0: Like I said, that is very uncomfortable to listen to, and you could watch the film and think that that is. Playing into the bums against the wall, lads. Any gay man will immediately try to rape you. Mm. Which was the when I went to school, homosexuality was twinned with obsession with male rape.
1: Yeah, that that there's there's that pair of scenes. You could I I would hope you could remove it and it would diminish that implication. But after that happens and Monty effectively assaults marwood by ripping off the, the blanket that he's got wrapped yeah. around himself he's got him a, in a, a corner
0: protection. cowering and
1: yeah um, marwood then goes and gets the shotgun and says to with if he comes back in my room it's murder and you will be held responsible in law and that element of gay panic that's for me the bit that really tips over into you didn't need this yeah. This is, this is not what you appeared to be trying to say about Monty. Why is this here?
0: You could re-edit the film, removing Monty saying, uh, I mean to have you, even if it must be burglary. And as, as, like, just get to Marwood's explanation and lie much quicker. Mm. And you could have Marwood being angry at, uh, with Null, but not threaten to kill Monty. Yeah. It would be less dramatic. And ultimately... This is irresponsible filmmaking. This is, uh, it, it's commendable that uh, the writers went out of their way to make Richard Griffith's characterization sympathetic and they make Monty tragicomic rather than just a ghoulish predator. The way that, um, trans killers hiding in toilets, ready, you know, ready to kill women are depicted just Mm. as as not being sympathetic at all, just being monsters. Monty is not depicted as a monster. He is depicted as sad.
1: Very sad, lonely old man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's commendable that they went in that direction, but that doesn't change the fact that it's irresponsible filmmaking that perpetuates a really harmful lie Mm. that ultimately all gay men will try to... Like, ultimately, of the two... Gay men versus straight men, which is the most vulnerable?
1: Well, I mean, part of it comes from Bruce Robinson's personal experience.
0: That's what I was going to say. We need the context for this, and nobody watching will know the context for this. Nobody listening will know the context for this. Bruce Robinson's first acting role was in Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, where he played Benvolio, part fools you know not what you do, Romeo's cousin. And I believe he ended up uh, fighting Michael York uh, playing, I'm Tybalt, yes, an Italian man. And uh, Franco Zeffirelli, on the first night of Bruce Robinson's uh, time in Italy, did what Monty did. He accosted him. Accosted him. uh, He cornered him. And there's a specific quote in the film, are you a stone or a sponge? Which is literally something that Zeffirelli said to him and it left uh robinson feeling terrified and paranoid and worried is this what acting is from like from this point on is this what acting is have i got to be raped by an abusive italian male director
1: and part of his his reasons for wanting to work this through and he it's he's very insightful about himself and the fact that he is continually writing these victim characters because he's trying to work this through his own system his
0: father was a fascist from the sounds of it and Mm. it took him a long time to separate himself in multiple ways from the man who was around
1: yeah but what i what i got overwhelmingly from the way he talked about this in the in the behind the scenes interviews was that The feeling he went away from that circumstance was, and and layered on top of that, the fact that he saw this happening to other people, not from Zeffirelli specifically, but that this was rife in in, uh, filmmaking, in theatre, that there were predatory directors and... Producers and men in positions Abusing of power, their power who abused people who were new to the industry, who didn't know what their their circumstances were, whether they even had the right to say no, and we know how rife this this is, yeah. and w- and certainly was. And this also brings me back
0: to Midnight <laughs> Cowboy, where that's the like John Voight's the same wide eyed kid hoping yep. to be treated well and gets treated horribly.
1: Yeah, and and that seems to be the thing that Robinson is the most. Angry about and frustrated about with that situation. It's worth noting that is not who Monty is. He is not somebody in a position, a, of, in power a position of power it. abusing it. Except in the fact that it is his house, hmm. but that's not how he's portrayed. He is pitiful.
0: And in that context, the way Monty is positioned is commendable considering what the man who wrote it went through. Mm. That doesn't make it okay. No, no, no It absolutely. just makes it more understandable as to what he was trying to get across. It. Like, he was like, let's give this guy the biggest benefit of the doubt you could possibly give a man.
1: But the, what I mean is there is a there is a discrepancy between his source and the point he seems to be trying to make.
0: Yeah ultimately uh, it would have been more sensible to do a one-to-one scenario where you have an actor <laughs> I mean, you got two actors right there yeah. it's it's like okay you want this part well what do you think you maybe have to do Marl at this maybe Marwood turns
1: the job down because that happens to him but anyway I mean that's well
0: maybe Withnall does I mean ultimately that could be why Withnall decides like he could reflect on it mm. and he you could realize that's why he always wants to be treated with what appears to be a disproportionate amount of respect mm. that he was abused and he He's afraid.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I mean either way, Robinson by his own admission doesn't go that deep, so
0: exactly.
12: been told to thank every single person on the Patreon, but they said I could narrow it down to just the top tier $15 sponsors and supporters who are very special people. These include Aaron Lecluse, April Savard, Angus Lee, Anthony Flores, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Meyer, Daniel Salgaro, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Poonsey, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright Jesse Ferguson Joe Crow Joel Robinson Johan Clayson Joe G Josh Waster Kat Esman Kevin Vahey Lorraine Chisholm Marty Huey Matthew A. Seabert Matthew Webb Michael Hasco Robbie Crow Sarah Montgomery Tim Rosensky Tima Hellas Timothy Green Toby Jungius Tom Painter Trey Contreras and Valencia Burns I am currently rolling the largest Camberwell carrot I have ever rolled. When I start passing it round the circle there should be enough for everyone.
6: Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: And when they rotate back to London, uh, it's very much, uh, Withnall is uh, kind of trying to avoid confronting directly the fact that he's about to be very alone and in serious trouble. And they get collared by the police because Withnull is driving drunk. And again, they somehow get away after, like, they get dragged in after he uses a, a, a weird fairy liquid bottle strapped to his leg full of child's piss. <laughs> I don't know how he got can't the piss.
1: I any circumstances see that work. <coughs> it,
0: <coughs> it's Chekhov's piss bottle because it gets uh, shown to us by Danny early in the film. But uh, the police are there positioned as fascists. Mm and again that makes me feel like the young ones where they were always similarly these black shirts led by Thatcher and given free reign to do whatever they want yeah. to the dregs of society that the authority. Conservatives would be happy if they just died.
1: Yeah. It uh, very much seems to be based on what happens to Alex's friends in A Clockwork, Clockwork Orange. Orange, should who yeah. become policemen further down the line.
0: Yeah, If you have a certain mentality it's a great profession to uh, exert cruelty without uh, repercussions. But Danny thinks and talks about the fact that they are reaching the end of the 60s, and this is what what ties it in with um, Fear and Loving in Las Vegas to me. It feels like there was a time that they're looking back on here where it seemed like they might go in the right direction, but then being written from the perspective of the 80s, there's a sort of a bitter, yes, and things got worse and worse, perspective of in terms of uh worship of the uh, notion of order and now that we're stuck in England in a loop of shitty conservative leaders there there was a time in 1997 when labor uh stepped up to the plate after decades of tory rule and said it was they, they played D-Reams, things can only get better, and Tony Blair was fresh-faced and young and cheeky compared with old grey John Major, who, by the way, was like a fucking breath of grey, but fresh air after fucking Thatcher. And it kept the 90s stable, albeit boring. Um, but it felt like we were actually going to be upwardly mobile, and I feel very much that energy, even though it's ten years after With and I was written, was sort of there, our energy would simply prevail, from the 60s. And then the fucking Gulf War II happened and everyone the, the decline of interest in Labour began. And throughout the 2000s, we just started tilting back towards Conservatives. Said, oh, maybe we go back to the Tories. And then the compromise we reached was a coalition between Tories and Liberal Democrats. And it's like, well, they'll balance each other out because put together those were more... Numerous than the votes for Labour.
1: It is worth noting, though, that that is not a compromise that the British people said, oh, let's have this. Yeah. That's a compromise <clears throat> that Nick Clegg decided on, yes. the leader of the Liberal Democrats at the time. The
0: wonky winged Pittsburgh. That's the one. That's the one. Uh, and uh, since then, uh, Liberal Democrats were put in a small Tupperware box by the Conservatives, who then continued Thatcher's reign. Now, what we've been stuck with since then is a succession of shitty leaders who fuck up so badly that they then have to leave. So this happened with David Cameron. Then it happened with Theresa May. By the time this goes out, it may already have happened with Boris Johnson. You put fingers crossed. Who do you think that... He,
1: I don't care. I just want him gone.
0: Meet the new boss, same as the old I boss. I
1: know, I know. But that's but the thing. I am not a better the devil you know kind of person.
0: They have substituted... A democratic process of renewal and going back and forth between a two-party system, which is what happens in America. With here's a different conservative, maybe he won't fuck things up quite so badly, and oh, it will wait. be a he. No, he will. That's not democracy at all. We're stuck in this fucking grip. I know. And as such, watching with Nan and I, and feeling this ghost of Thatcher to come, I feel this film. I feel the trapped sense of there's no place for you there's no place for someone in england who doesn't want the conservatives in power
4: you get the part man i got a different one they want me to play the lead. congratulations
5: where exactly have you two? be holiday in the countryside that's a very good idea london is a country coming down from its trip we are 91 days from the end of this decade, and there's gonna be a lot of refugees. There was a geezer around here the other day looking for you. What geezer? Some bald geezer. Reckons you owe him 266 quid back rent. I told him there's no question of paying rent on the property cut with rodents. He takes exception to this. He starts coming on really bald with me. What do you mean, ready? I told him to piss off. You bloody fool, he'd have us up in court again. No, he won't. It ain't legal. I assume we
4: can quote you, can we?
5: Law rather appeals to me, actually.
7: <laughs>
5: Just I. <high. laughs> Stop laughing, with no, this is serious. No, it ain't. I looked into it, studied the papers. What papers? Legal papers. <laughs>
4: What papers, darling? <laughs> <laughs> For Christ's sake, Bernard, stop laughing. Ah, this is a notice ah, to be fixed.
8: Ah, will ah, ah, you stop laughing? They want to throw us out. Give me a ah, downer, ah, darling. My brain's capsizing.
5: I'm going to fuck my brain. Change down, man. Find your neutral space. You've got a rush. It will pass. Be seated. You have done something to your brain. You have made it high. If I lay 10 mils of diazepam on you, you will do something else to your brain. You will make it low. Why trust one drug and not the other? That's politics, isn't it? What are you talking about, Danny? Politics, man. If you're hanging on to a rising balloon, you're presented with a difficult decision. Let go before it's too late, or hang on and keep getting higher. Posing the question, how long can you keep a grip on the rope? They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. The greatest decade in the history of mankind is over. And as presuming Ed here has so consistently pointed out, we have failed to paint it black.
1: The casual homophobia that Marwood tends to fall back onto appears to come from a place of being repeatedly misidentified as gay himself and that usually being followed up with some kind of threat or violence. And Willow picked up on the fact that that repeated pattern is going to put him in a mindset where he's got this trauma response whenever it's suggested or hinted that someone might think he's gay he assumes that pain and and violence are going to follow and so he becomes very defensive Hmm.
0: I thought that was really um cool that Willow came up with that because the scene would be very easy for them to reject Hmm. And go, right, no, I don't want any of this because it's, it's uh, unsympathetic and it's demonising gay people. But they saw through.
1: Mm. I think the fact that there isn't any actual violence mm. was was helpful in that sense.
0: And now I suppose for something a little more fun for us to end on. Withnell himself and Richard E. Grant's magnificent performance, informed in no small part upon one of my favourite characters that I've written, The Nag is a mysterious winged unicorn masquerading as a disgusting, flea-bitten, old-talking horse. And he's found originally in The Princess Thieves and then uh, turned up in various following books. This is not even self-promotion. It is my connecting back to my influences. When it came time to craft a life partner... For Merlane, who is my gender shifting version of Merlin. I began with the owl Archimedes from Disney's The Sword and the Stone. And then I thought about what dynamics spending eons in one another's company would cultivate. And my mind settled on Withnal. And there was also a line that uh, Russell Howard said where it's like, Oh, I've got a surprise for you boys at Christmas. Oh, is it a unicorn that swears? And I thought, I should do that because I don't think I've ever seen that before. <laughs> And thus the nag was born. Strangely, despite being a contemptuous scumbag who treats everyone and everything with sarcastic disdain and occasionally delirious neurosis, he also breaks the fourth wall all the time like Deadpool, talking directly to the reader often. He's wound up as many listeners' favourite. And I suspect a lot of this comes down to two things. Spencer Lieb's astonishing and hilarious vocal performance, and this... Strange sadness from Withnall and loneliness that surrounds this absurd creature who himself has no place in this world.
1: Mm, Absolutely.
0: He snorted. Then, in an intricate movement, he uncorked a bottle from a nearby shelf with his tongue, gripped the neck between his teeth, and tilted it upwards, letting the fiery liquor pour down his throat.
7: My real name?
0: Said the knack, setting aside the bottle for a moment.
7: It's so long and complicated, you'd forget the end by the time you got to the middle. Really? No. Okay.
1: James and I were mostly lost and kind of starving, and you saved our asses. So whatever, you know, manipulation of our minds and our journey is going on here, I just want to say thank you now. I'm very excited to be
10: puppeteered across to the next step. "'Well, that's nice to know,' said Marlene,
0: sharpening up a large serving knife as she moved in on the steak and kidney pie.
10: "'What's
7: there?'
0: "'Oh, it's heavenly,' the knack snorted as the pie was laid down.
7: "'Only the British could conceive of combining decent cuts of meat with the offal that nobody else would want.'
10: "'Rather like you and I.'
7: "'Are you calling me a kidney?' Because one cannot function without kidneys.
10: You keep on quaffing that bourbon, and we'll see if that's true.
7: My dear old fish, must we all be reminded that we're on bloody holiday?
10: And yet here I am, doing all the cooking, as per usual, while you laze about like a dying swan.
7: Right, you fucker. I'm going to do the washing up.
10: Splendid. I didn't like those plates anyway.
12: Should we leave you two alone?
10: Would you take him with you when you go?
12: Moline's tone softened as she doled out helpings of meat, gravy,
0: and flaky pastry.
10: Long way to the door, and a horse to ride you there would get it done a lot quicker, not to mention safer. You want to get
0: rid of me? The nag sounded hurt.
10: I think a little stretch of your legs and doing something for someone else would do you good,
0: she replied, and placed the remaining half-pie still in its dish, upon the little pink wicker table beside the couch, close to his head. He eyed her reproachfully, set down the bottle upon the table, then turned and slumped away from her.
10: He's sulking. Let him be,
0: said Merlane. Abigail and I fell upon our suppers like gannets. And I felt, after watching Robinson talk for a long time in interviews... There are a lot of similarities between the two of us. He has become much more bitter than I am. And I like the fact that I'm able to hold on to a certain degree of optimism and that I require joy, even if it is to be dark humour, to get through. I can't just shit on everything all the time. I have to laugh. Again, watching this movie was probably the saddest I've seen it as well. And it's, it's best exemplified by its music at the end. Withnall gives this... Uh, walks uh, Marwood to the station, who won't even let him come all the way. He says, we'll share a bottle of wine, but it's just Withnall drinking wine on his own. Mm. And eventually he gives a soliloquy to the wolves at London Zoo or in the park. I shall never play the Dane. And Withnall... With all the tragic comedy of full stuff, or Fortinbras's stunt double <coughs> delivers a Hamlet soliloquy that, when I was younger, I thought was magnificent, but now I realise is a little overacted, and maybe why he didn't get many of the parts. Yeah,
1: his his uh, pacing of it is actually a little bit off.
0: Yeah, uh, he runs on sentences, so he actually starts describing something that's actually part of the next sentence. indeed. But it's wonderful to see, because what you're actually seeing is Withnall, not Hamlet. Yeah. And...
1: But it is his resignation, because it's effectively the only audience I'm ever going to get to deliver the Dane to is these fucking wolves.
0: (laughs) And then it plays this sad pipe organ clown music as he walks away which reminds me of Boogie Nights Mm. and it 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 makes for a a little chestnut of sopping wet British life Mm. which feels remarkably applicable even now and it's very easy to sympathise with it is perfectly okay to watch this film feel shitty about the stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable and should have been written differently, feel very uncomfortable with some of the language used and some of the attitudes, feel sorry for its characters, resent and feel abhorrence towards these characters, or at least animosity. But it's important to realise that in most cases they're kind of at the bottom. Mm. They're bohemians but they are... Well, withnal as he walks away from you, is draining into the gutter. I'm
6: off
4: now. Already? I've got us a bottle open. I confiscated it from Monty's supplies. 53 Margo. Best of the century. I'm sure he wouldn't resent us parting drink. I can't,
5: Withnall. I've got to walk to the station. I'll be late.
4: There's always time for a drink. Yeah. I don't have the time. All right, I walk with you through the park. We can drink it on the way.
0: This is like Christopher Robin going off to boarding school and leaving Winnie the Pooh behind.
4: No, no more, thank you. Listen, with us little stinker, why don't you go back? Because I want to walk into the station with well, them. Please don't. I really don't want you to. I shall miss you, Bethnal. I shall miss you too. Chin Chin. of late but wherefore I know not lost all my mirth and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame the air seems to me a sterile promontory it's most excellent canopy the air look you this brave or hanging firmament this majestic old roof, fretted with golden fire. Why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is a man! How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god! The beauty of the world, paragon of animals, yet to me what is this quintessence of dust man delights not me no no women neither no women neither Behind the eyes, where's the aspenge? Probably in the bathroom. I feel like a pig shut in my head.
0: I could see the horse biting his lip through the pain to avoid crying out in intelligible words. I patted his neck. Do we have whiskey handy? Whiskey? Strange beast has a taste for it. I said as dismissively as possible. Soon enough, he was bandaged and breathing with labored pain, but stabilized. A bowl of rye lay beside his head for him to snake his tongue into and focus his attention not on the pain, but on fiery liquor. Abigail stalked off after pacing about helplessly, and I was left with the convalescing
12: horse.
7: This is piss, by the way. I wouldn't give this whiskey to a nearsighted badger.
12: Neither would I, I said, quite truthfully.
7: I want cake and fine wine.
0: I don't think we'll find much of quality in this place.
7: Balls. I want the finest wines available to humanity. I want them here, and I want them now.
0: I'll see what I can do. You never told us you could be hurt.
7: You believed me invincible because I am an exceptionally rare creature.
0: He exclaimed deliriously.
7: What, am I to declare to everyone I meet, be on your guard? If you're a prick, I might well bleed.
0: Don't worry. I've been learning the comings and goings of this town and
6: I have an idea.